Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, Heard Tell Show. It is Monday, August the 8th, year of our Lord 2022, just continues to roll right along. We're almost in the football and school season, folks. Can you believe it? How fast did that summer go? I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you for joining us here on Herd Tell. Going to try to turn down the noise on some of the news cycle stuff that's been going on over the weekend the last few days. Thank you so much for being with us with the most precious thing you have, your time. If you're new to the program, all we try to do here is very simple. We talk to knowledgeable guests, we turn down the noise, we get to the things that actually matter, and we do it without any yelling, without any caterwauling. The point here is to discern the times we live in so we can make good decisions and know what's going on around us. So let's get right into it. Exciting program today. We're going to talk about a couple different things. Uh, school shootings is still on everybody's mind after Uvalde and, of course, after other mass shootings and after things like we just had the Parkland anniversary. Uh, a school system in North Carolina is trying one of those do something kind of ideas. It involves keeping AR-15s, ammos, and breaching tools in the schools. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Also, ending the program, we always end the program on an uplifting or high note. This is a cool one. Some kids selling T-shirts down in Tampa for a very good cause, making money, having a whole lot of fun doing it. Our guest today, we're going to go back overseas, Afghanistan. Now, the Zawahiri drone strike briefly brought people's attention back to Afghanistan. But as we're on the one-year anniversary of the fall of Kabul and the botched, bloody, and deadly U.S. pullout, we're going to reassess what's been going on over in Afghanistan because let's be honest, most Western audiences haven't paid a lick of attention since then other than Zawahiri going room temperature in a couple of pieces thanks to some Hellfire missiles. We're going to go to a friend of ours, Pratamesh Yamul, over in India. He's going to talk about Afghanistan. He has a piece out where he talks about the turf war between the Taliban and ISIS-K and how that's demanding what is actually going on in Afghanistan right now. Pratamesh Yamel, great guest today on Hertel, going deep on Afghanistan. Um, also, Alex Jones, a uh, terrible human being, has a right to say the terrible things he does, but we also have legal system things. And he has lost his defamation suit that Sandy Hook parents have prevailed. We're going to talk about that and what's coming next uh, in just a minute. First, let's set the scene on something. Um, if I told you that a group of oct octogenarians, people over their age 80, were kept up for 16 straight hours, were only allowed short brief naps, uh, had to be let to go back and forth from a commons area to their private rooms just to rest and regroup and back again, one of them coming off hip surgery, had to be wheeled around in a wheelchair, uh, which people commented on. 
uh, they commented more on what his wheelchair looked like and the sticker on his wheelchair than why in the world do we have to wheel out an 80 plus year old in the first place just to do all this silliness. Another 80 year old was obstructing and being a gadfly and driving everybody bat crazy over it, even people on his own side. Um, what am I describing? Is this the new dystopian fiction novel? No, this is the United States Senate trying to pass uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, which was Build Back Mansion, Joe Manchin's efforts to reconstitute something from Build Back Better. Now, remember, Build Back Better, if you go back far enough, was going to be anywhere from a trillion to five trillion dollars. Massive legislation. Remember, it's going to be FDR like New Deal type of legislation. That didn't happen because Joe Manchin said no, among other things. It's a 50-50 Senate. But then all of a sudden, he got resurrected a couple weeks ago. The big chunks of this bill, climate change stuff, green energy stuff. There's also big health care provisions in this bill, along with some other things. And, of course, the stuff Joe Manchin wanted to make it go through. Now, they did what was called a Votorama. We're going to link to a bunch of stuff here. Really good reporting. Our friend uh, Eric Garcia, who's on this program frequently, he was there for almost all of this. In fact, he got an interview with uh, Vice President Harris, among other things. Uh, we'll link to some of the coverage. Long story short here, though, everybody's talking about it passed, and people are joking about the Votorama. What the Votorama should show us, though, is that we have a deeply broken system. Think about this. We had to have a 16-hour ordeal where people went through the process of amendments that we knew none of them were going to pass because they were just going to shove it through here. They did do one fix at the end on some of the health care stuff and on some of the tax stuff. But mostly this outcome was never in doubt. But we went through this 16-hour Votorama along with the octogenarian senators who we should talk about someday when is too old to serve. Sorry, that's just the fact. We should not have 80-year-olds in power in the United States of America. Go ahead and send your ages tweet. That's just the fact. The military has mandatory retirement. Our government should as well. But the whole scene of this is so ludicrous, and we've become so, so accustomed to it that we don't even stop and realize how crazy this is anymore. They're jamming through bills on deadlines. In this case, it was a recess deadline. They uh, recessed the Senate for a month so everybody could go home and campaign and do other things. Or they'll do it against the fiscal budget. Or they'll do it against some other crises. That's the only way they get anything done. Or they package everything in big omnibus bills so they can hide stuff that would never pass behind things that would pass. They do this every year on things like uh, defense spending. The defense spending bills are always notorious. They shove things that would otherwise pass never pass into those bills and then when oh you can't vote against this or you hate the troops or oh you can't vote against this education bill you hate the kids and they'll slide stuff behind it this is the only way people govern but whose fault is that is it the senate's fault is it congress's fault no it's our fault because we tolerate this nonsense this happened over many years and mostly out of inertia and a whole lack of not caring and not paying a lick of attention to any of it and this is what happens and until we punish them at the ballot box and tell them, no, you have to do better, do some regular legislating instead of just never letting a crisis go to wake and shoving stuff through at the last minute that we don't even know what all's in it because you voted on amendments at the last minute. Now we got to wait to see what's in it because you passed it. Remember all that mess. This is what has become of the world's greatest experiment in a people self-governing. Votorama with octogenarians. Just stop and think for a second how ludicrous that is, how embarrassing it should be, and how it's nowhere near what good, effective, cohesive, consistent government should be.
but it's our own fault. We have representative government. And this is how we've chosen to let ourselves be represented, either by omission or commission. Shame on us. More hotel right after this. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca Cola, Pepsi, or 7 Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Uh, welcome back to Hurt Tell. Okay, Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist, the very bad actor, one of the worst people in American media. He's vile. He is somebody who should be shouted down and shunned from polite society. However, we do have a First Amendment. He has a right to say whatever he wants to, but we commercially should not be platforming this ridiculous person. Uh, he's going through his first of a series of trials and defamation suits. Now, he lost this one down in to the Sandy Hook parents. Uh, the judge ruled uh, both compensatory damages and the jury also awarded damages for pain and suffering. Now, everybody needs to calm down about the numbers on these because here's the thing. Texas has a punitive cap on damages in lawsuits. So they're not going to get all the money that folks are saying here. It's capped at double the, uh, double the amount plus $750,000. So the judge has no choice but to cap this. So when that happens, don't panic, don't freak out, and don't go on the internet and lose your mind. I'm telling you ahead of time, based on what most lawyers are telling us, this is going to get capped down to a lot less than that. However, what's important here, besides the money, is that he ran into a big wall of reality. Let's read from Forbes here real quick. I like how uh, Daniel D. Placido um, put it. Um, Jones seems to make a good living. This is from Forbes, by the way. Jones seemed to make a good living from amplifying hate and selling supplements to his gullible followers, despite his reputation as an underdog muzzled by big tech. In court, it was revealed that during the certain periods in 2018, InfoWars made a jaw-dropping $800,000 a day. The Sandy Hook parents' lawyers claimed that after Jones was deplatformed, his numbers kept getting even better. Jones wasn't some outspoken figure pushed out of the mainstream. Reportedly, Mark Zuckerberg personally stepped in to give Jones special treatment after Jones broke Facebook's rule concerning hateful conduct. Former Facebook employee had told BuzzFeed News Source that Mark personally didn't like the punishment, so he changed the rules. Jones has spent so long broadcasting his warped view of the world, making claims about interdimensional pedophiles, human-animal hybrids, and false flags, never seeming to suffer the consequences. By the way, my favorite is the uh, child miners on Mars. That was a good one, too. Don't forget that one. Back to Forbes. When his most hateful lies sparked a backlash, Jones and his team proved ridiculously inept. The podcast Knowledge Fight has done a fantastic job documenting the absurd sequence of events that have led to Jones's finally facing the music after losing a series of civil defamation but cases by default. Basically, he refused to participate, so he lost. We'll link to this piece, and that piece has all these links as well. Hence, seeing Jones hitting the boundaries of reality. 
stuck in a co courtroom full of people who don't share his warped worldview is enormously satisfying, like watching a bloated housefly smack its head against a window, refusing to acknowledge the existence of that barrier. So far, Jones has been forced to look at Sandy Hook parents in the eyes, has been informed by the clearly exasperated judge that he's not allowed to lie under oath, and has been informed by the plaintiff's attorney that they have direct evidence of him lying thanks to text messages they were sent by mistake by his lawyers, which is funny enough and we're going to be hearing more from because now everybody's going to have access to that information. Watching Jones squirm in court, attempting to deflect, distract, or to even promote his supplements feels surreal, like an elaborate Nathan Fielder setup. Under the scrutiny of unsympathetic eyes and cameras, Jones has been forced to admit that the Sandy Hook attack was 100% real. Joe Rogan isn't there to save him. No simpering content creator there to laugh off his comments as jokes. This is not your show, Judge Maya Gruyere Gamble told Jones. Your beliefs do not make something true, and you are under oath. Please go watch some of the video clips of Alex Jones sitting there and squirming not being able to fake off and not having any of his internet minions trying to pass him off as a lovable buffoon or the guy who's always right. He's neither. He's vile, he's wrong, and he shouldn't have any place in our society or our media. Yes, I know he has a First Amendment right. So do we. We should use it to shout him down and shame him from ever showing his face in public again. More Hertel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, we haven't talked about Afghanistan lately, but we need to. There's a lot of stuff going on over there. It's almost the one-year anniversary of the pullout of America and the other allies and the mess that Kabul became. A uh, friend of ours from over in India joining us. He has a great piece out in International Policy Digest. Pradamesh Yamul joining us from India. How are you, sir? Appreciate your time today. Hello, I'm pretty well. Thank you for having me here. I'm thrilled to have you. Okay, let's just start because let's be adults here. Most of the world stopped paying attention right after the Kabul fold, fell. Everybody got upset. They were mad for about a week or two, and then everybody worldwide moved on. Pick up the story from there because for the people of Afghanistan, and Afghanistan's population doubled over the 20 years of the American war there. Pick the story up there. What, what happened after that that kind of led us up to what's going on now a year later? So basically, after the fall of Kabul, the Taliban managed to take over most of Afghanistan. There was um, an attempt by members of the previous uh, democratic government, such as the vice president, Amrullah Saleh, and um, Ahmed Masood, uh, who was, I guess, a military commander. He was uh, son of the famous Ahmed Shah Masood. There was an attempt by them to put up resistance in the Panjshir Valley um in uh, it's i think north of kabul as far as i remember and there was an attempt to put up resistance there which didn't last for too long you know they weren't that well supported they were support surrounded from all sides and um after that for the most part the taliban was able to take at least military control of the uh, country but what they haven't been able to form a government or an administration in the strictest sense they have formed a government, a state, they've appointed their leadership, but there's been quite a 
quite an issue with the amount of control they can exert over the country and also how effectively they can govern uh, administer and um, enforce laws among other things one of the biggest problems they faced ever since they took kabul and took over afghanistan has been um, an organization called isk or daesh k which is uh, it is basically an affiliate of the islamic state in syria and iraq that we know so well and it's the local affiliate of uh, isis called isis khorasan province or vilayat khorasan and they have basically um, they were carrying out an insurgent and terrorist campaign even against the previous democratic government but they've kind of used the chaos that came with um, the taking of kabul and you know the taliban trying to form a new state new government to exert their control over the, most of the country they've used that chaos to um, exercise terror basically they've had they've had constant attacks on the taliban taliban troops taliban police and they've done constant um, terrorist attacks on civilian places they've attacked mosques they've attacked hospitals they've attacked um, schools they've as recently as yesterday there was an uh, not yesterday i'm sorry as recent as a few weeks ago or a month ago there was an attack on uh, gurudwara which is a sikh religious site in kabul where uh, an isis militant attempted to uh, kill a bunch of uh, peaceful worshippers basically and these attacks have been for the majority been focused like the terror attacks have been focused on civilians and have disproportionately affected the minority communities like the shia muslims and uh, sikhs and hindus in afghanistan and um isis k has kind of been unrelenting in their attacks on the taliban and the civilian population they've constantly kept up the pressure and they've used this chaos to kind of um form a stronghold of sorts in two major provinces in uh, northeastern Afghanistan, mainly Nangarhar and Kunar province, and um, a third called Nuristan, where they have a somewhat lesser presence. And these are high mountainous provinces, you know, hard to get. So they've basically stuck there and formed a kind of local base there. And ever since, they've constantly been attacking civilian sites. They've been attacking Taliban members. And they've been trying to sow as much chaos and create as much instability as they could. And basically, that's what's been going on. There have been major attacks. They've attacked, um, they've attacked Shiite mosques. They've attacked uh, Sikh religious sites. They've attacked hospitals. They were, I think they attacked uh, a maternal hospital, if I'm not wrong. They've also carried out very sophisticated for um for the region they've carried out very sophisticated terrorist attacks on um the afghan power grid they've attacked uh power electricity towers which resulted in blackouts for large portions of uh, afghanistan and they did this on a very strategic uh, time they did it close to the e holiday of eid and um basically they've been trying to sow as much chaos as possible if you uh, remember during the american pullout from afghanistan or the fall of kabul there was a suicide attack at kabul airport where uh, american servicemen died and you know 170 or so afghans died if i'm not wrong 
and uh, this attack was also carried out by isis khorasan so basically they have been attempting to uh, use the chaos and the I, i'd say position of instability that always comes with a new armed revolution taking control to basically advance their agenda and they've been attacking basically everyone in the region now on the outside observers because we don't always pay real close attention to this in the west especially in american media when americans aren't involved people probably are wondering why are they fighting there's some important differences between isis-k and the taliban though the taliban of course came out of the pashtun nationalism the tribal people they were the original um the mujahideen if you're old enough to go all the way back to the soviet era uh for lack of a better way of explaining it isis k sees them more locally and they see themselves as more of the international branch there's some other ideological differences though why is it a shooting blood for you you call it a turf war for our western parlance this is just going to be an internal thing right there's not going to be any detente here there's not going to be a peace among them right not likely because well for one this is i call it a turf war because this conflict is not only ideological but for some of them it's personal you see isis khorasan actually formed from a breakaway group of what uh, of the organization that is tehreek e taliban pakistan which is basically the pakistani taliban uh, so two of the major leaders who formed isis k one of them was hafiz said khan who was a pakistani from tehreek e taliban pakistan and another one uh, i can't remember his name but was a pretty high uh, taliban leader afghan taliban leader so this isn't just ideological but is also quite literally uh, the result of personal disputes within the leadership along with this there is of course the fact that um, they basically both organizations are kind of going for the same core audience they're say they're going to recruit the same core group of uh, radically inclined uh, people who are ready to fight along with that this conflict also has its roots uh, kind of in the general conflict internationally among uh, jihadists that we see between al qaeda and uh, the islamic state the islamic state broke away as a part of al qaeda and uh, they both claim to lead a worldwide islamist movement so it's partly because of partly because they're you know going for the same position they're not going to have any form of detent because islamic state claims itself to be a province uh, islamic state in khorasan claims to be a province of um the global islamic caliphate they will have an amir the islamic emirate of afghanistan also claims to have an amir as their leader you can't have two um, leaders in one place and the, so there's not really as much of a scope for a detente especially because they also come from two relatively different streams of um, islamic conservatism the taliban are deobandis which is an islamic uh, revivalist movement a fundamentalist movement that was founded in uh, colonial era india and uh, it has its roots much closer to pashtun ethnic um, nationalism and their ethnic code called pakhtunwali while um, the islamic state is salafist you know they have their roots in the middle east and they they have a much more global outlook for one and another 
thing is that um the islamic state is kind of a kind of an attraction for those islamists in afghanistan who are not pashtuns like tajiks uzbeks we can see this especially because an organization called the islamic movement of uzbekistan uh, merged with isis k very early on because historically um, the taliban has been a pashtun dominated organization and when they ruled in the 90s it was not a good time for a lot of non pashtun people in afghanistan and those memories still stand and especially because the democratic government of afghanistan was dominated by these ethnic groups which are non pashtun so there's a certain ethnic element to it in that a lot of people who share similar fundamentalist views probably would feel that um isis might be more conductive to them they might have a better place there than a somewhat nationalist ethnically based movement like the taliban yeah i'm proud of mostly joining us uh we're going to take a quick break when we come back we're going to get back into his article uh at international policy digest how the taliban's doing actually running the country as opposed to just being the operational forces a lot of bad news there also talk about the future afghanistan update what's been going on over there our friend patamashia mold joining us on herd tell more right after this break Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Our friend Padmesh Yamul from over in India joining us. We're talking Afghanistan. Uh, my friend, you mentioned it in your article. We've linked to it, International Policy Digest. Make sure you read the whole article for yourself. Part of the problem with the Taliban is having now, and it was very predictable because we talked about it during the drawdown and the total chaos that that was when they took over Kabul. Um, they have to actually govern now, and they're not only actually having to govern but they're having to govern over a very different country than they used to govern before the American intervention. The population has doubled. The population is extremely young. The average age in Afghanistan is like mid twenties now. And there's still a country that is very, very strained on resources as it always has. And now all that American money is gone. This looked like a recipe for disaster for them to try to rule because they don't have any experience running a country. And that's pretty much how it's played out. And now with all these issues, like with ISIS-K, you've got a lot of people fighting over a dwindling amount of resources and a very, very stressed population, don't you? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you have you have a country that's been at war for pretty much 43 years now, continuously. You you also have a situation where the Taliban does not really have many international allies. They don't have access to international streams of funding. Any resources that the uh, former government had, the you know Ghani government, they're all frozen in international banks. The Taliban does not have a lot of money per se, and they don't exactly have yet the expertise to rule or administer a country as either. They've basically spent the last 20 years fighting a guerrilla war against uh, American and uh, Afghan security forces. And they they have never had, even though they've held territory for quite a long time, unlike a lot of other guerrilla um, movements, they've never attempted to, let's say, form a local administration or a shadow 
administration in place. They've in the war in Afghanistan has been a constant, you know, hide and seek game between uh, allied forces, uh, NATO forces, and between the Taliban. So that leaves a situation where the the Taliban have now won, and a lot of them will be asking themselves, okay, what do we do now? Along with this, there's also how do I say it? There's also certain amounts of internal conflicts between the Taliban. There is, of course, the issue that there is the general Taliban that um, exists in Afghanistan is not exactly a centralized leadership. It's made up of a lot of local warlords, local forces, a lot of people who switched over to the Taliban only in recent times when, you know, the wind started blowing the other way. There's also the issue of a large block in the Taliban is made up of the so-called Haqqani network led by Sirajuddin Haqqani which is quite literally a, a whole separate organization within the Taliban. There's also an issue regarding um, differences between the Taliban political leadership, which has been in Doha and, you know, the, one, the ones that negotiated with the United States who signed the agreement and the actual on the ground, you know, military leaders. And we don't know whether the military leaders would want to you know toe the same line that the political leadership would the political leadership definitely wants to rule and administer in whatever way they see administration being but a lot of for people who have been at war um for longer than their whole lives it raises a question of how do you ease them into um a civilian peacetime administration uh, in a country like Afghanistan, where conflict is so prolonged, there's not much left to get money from. There's not there's not mu there's not much uh, sources of funding left for reconstructing a government. Along with this, at least as of yet, we have not seen the Taliban try to moderate their stance on any of their major issues, and um, this means that you know the international community is not going to help them that much either. Right. And, um, things. I'm sorry, Padmashir Mook uh, joining us. Uh, part of the reason they cannot get the international community, though, is not just their own brutality. As predicted, they did the massive crackdown on girls and women. You addressed it in your article. Um, let's just be honest here. People that have spent years as guerrilla fighters, they have a rigid ideology when it comes to women and minority groups and other folks and other religious groups they're really in a corner here that they're never going to really get international recognition unless they have some dramatical revolutionary change in how they do things. Is that still the stance because we saw the crackdown on women and girls in schools and all that? Is there any hint at all that they're ever going to change? Because I'm very skeptical that they will. I don't think so, honestly. And, you know, recent events have given us even more um, food for thought in uh, on in the sense that um, in around three days ago in Kabul, uh, there was an American drone strike that resulted in the death of Ayman al-Zawahiri, who was the longtime leader of Al-Qaeda, the second most important person in Al-Qaeda after Osama bin Laden. Now, one of the major factors in America signing a deal with the Taliban was that the Taliban promised in their Doha agreement in 2021 not to support Al-Qaeda, not to allow them presence in Afghanistan. and um, they've clearly broken that. So not only are their policies not conductive to an international, um, let's say, acceptance, not only have they broken an international agreement 
now it's very clear that they were housing the most important al qaeda leader in their in their capital nonetheless and um they have not denied it they have in fact called this an american uh, attack on their sovereignty and of course you know that's a different debate but the the point that comes here is that they've basically create made themselves even less um ideal as a partner in international eyes and now that they've also been harboring the leader of probably world's most infam infamous terrorist group it's just worse Pratamish Yamel joining us let's let's talk big picture for just a second we know what happened we know what a mess afghanistan is Talk about the people of Afghanistan, because this we just talked about it. The population has doubled. This generation didn't live under the Taliban previously, almost any of them. They are now. You ended your article on kind of a down note of like, you know, the real story here is this is a country that has suffered immensely and they're going to continue to suffer and they're going to have even more chaos. Is there any hope for Afghanistan at all right now? Because something like the Zahawi strike that means even less America paying attention because obviously they had a network to make that happen. We, they had to have, you know, some inroads. They're probably going to care even less now that you don't have something like that to go after. The world is not paying attention to this. We're one year removed from cabal falling. You know, you can't find Afghanistan in the headlines. Are they just doomed to another couple decades of this mess? Is that where we're at with this? I mean, it's likely now the issue with ISIS Khorasan is that, the Taliban has been trying to deal with them. You know, they've been trying to deal with them in a military and uh, counterinsurgency sense. But the Taliban has been, for lack of better uh, phrasing, has been using an approach that can be described as, you know, every problem is a nail if you have a big enough hammer. And this has led to a lot of civilian casualties, a lot of, um, let's say, extrajudicial killings, a lot of collateral damage. And that's not how you run an ins run a counterinsurgency. You know, the more innocents you kill, the more you give credence to the ISIS's claim that this is an illegitimate government or an illegitimate administration. While the Taliban, while ISIS has a very small presence, let's say territory-wise or uh, in terms of personnel, they've been conducting attacks widely beyond this uh territorial presence they've been attacking they've been conducting regular attacks in kabul they've been conducting regular attacks everywhere and the more the taliban you know tries to deal with this with a blunt approach the more it's just gonna worsen things and i don't know about uh the next 30 years of conflict but this thing is gonna rage for a while especially if you know uh, they don't get help from foreign actors and they haven't been able to in improve their relations with their neighbor neighbors either. You know, they've had uh, border clashes with Iran and we have seen how Iran res uh, responds to instability on their borders. You know, they have responded to instability on their borders in Iraq and Syria. We don't know what they would do in Afghanistan. And um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that it's not really very bright for the future because while the Taliban has gained control over their country, they're not being able to um, exercise exercise the ability and uh, let's say power that a normal government does. 
they're constantly having to deal with issues which if it was in a conventional state somewhere we'd see we just call it a failed state like so basically for the next at least five or ten years i see maybe this conflict simmering down a bit in five years or ten years but it's very rough because isis has shown that you can take their territory you can kill their militants they'll just have more and the thing is they don't need a lot of people to carry out the, the kind of attacks they are carrying out and another major issue is that isis khorasan is pro operating in the provinces bordering pakistan and they have a major presence in khyber pakhtunwa which is the province of pakistan which borders um, afghanistan so this becomes a you know transnational problem and the border around those areas is very porous so and it, there's a lot of high land mountainous territory which the taliban will find it very hard to you know exercise a, an effective counterinsurgency operation in now the other option then defeating them militarily is um, coming to terms with them and i i feel it might be a possibility for taliban but as said before they have too many differences for them to properly come to terms in an agreement and i just see this conflict getting worse for the next couple of years because the taliban is not being able to exercise effective uh, monopoly of violence in their country basically they're not being able to uh, make sure that they're the only actor who can you know use armed actions and as long as they aren't able to do this they're basically all can operate as a failed state and i don't see that changing for quite a while yeah oddly enough the uh, same things that allowed them to operate for decades and come to power themselves is now limiting their ability to stay in power and keep stability uh pratamish great stuff today one last question for you though for the western audience because our news media is basically ignoring this unless something like the zawahiri thing happens or god forbid you know there's a massive death toll or something like that What's a good way for folks to keep track of what's going on in Afghanistan? What should they be watching for? Because there's always going to be these little clashes. What should the Western audience and the American and English-speaking world audience be watching for that something is changing or something is getting better or worse over there? They should be watching for, honestly speaking, this conflict for now has been very steady. It's been very, for lack of a better word, it's been... It's been consistent, but cons like consistent in a negative way. There's not, there's no changes that have been occurring for Western audiences. I'd say there's always news about it. It's just buried underneath a lot of other, um, let's say, more important things for the West, maybe. But I would advise uh, just keeping. I would advise being informed about what isis does and what isis says because um as with the middle east and isis they're you know very vocal about what they're trying to do and of course the uh, the taliban has also become more media savvy they're putting out releases about their supposed counterinsurgency operations and the successes of it i would try to look for the impact on the civilians the moment you see the impact on civilians lessening you know there's you find out that there's some kind of solution uh coming up but unfortunately for now it's not like that just recently you know uh, in something that's more closely related to my uh, location 
there's been a relative mass exodus of Afghan Sikhs uh, leaving their country and fleeing to India because it's simply not that safe anymore. Because there's ISIS targeting them, the Taliban is not going to help them out that much. They're infidels for the more radical members of the Taliban. So, you know, you have a community in the few hundreds of which there are scores fleeing back to India. And of course, um, while I'm happy they have a safe haven here to come to, it's also sad that they have to leave homes which they have occupied for centuries. And it just shows that, you know, the most important thing here is the civilians. And until we see less civilians being affected, it's it's not going to get better. Yeah, well said, my friend. Uh, Pradamesh Yamul joining us on Hertel. We're definitely going to have you back, my friend. You've got good information. You present it well. We appreciate your insight. Let folks know how they can keep up with what you've got going on. We're going to link to your article. Let them know how they can follow you and what else you have going on, my friend, until we see you again. Um, I just have a blog that I operate on mostly issues like this. It's um, stuff.wordpress.com, but uh, th there's no T's, there's sevens instead. And you can just uh, visit me there. I write articles about things regularly. Of course, I also plan on writing more for um, publications like the International Policy Digest. So um, hopefully you can read more there. Yep, and we'll link to his blog and his other work. You do good work. We look forward to having you back real soon, my friend. Thank you so very much for the time. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here and contribute. Thank you. Yes, sir. Welcome back to Hertel. Okay, since Uvalde and going back even further to Stoneman Douglas and some other shootings, and especially in schools, not just mass shootings, but schools in specific, folks have wanted to know what they should be doing. And people are coming up with very as to what they should do. Let's go to Madison County, North Carolina. Um, this is from the Citizen Times out of Asheville. Madison County Schools and Madison County Sheriff's Office are collaborating to enhance security in the schools for the upcoming school year after the Uvalde, Texas tragedy revealed systemic failures and poor decision-making with responding police disregarding active shooter training, according to a report from the Texas State House, Those officers were in that building for so long, and that suspect was able to infiltrate that building and injured and kill so many kids, Sheriff Buddy Harwood said, quote, I just want to make sure my deputies are prepared in the event that happens. Madison County School Superintendent Will Hoffman said uh, Madison County School administrators have been meeting regularly with law enforcement officials, including Harwood, to discuss the upcoming and updated safety measures. On July 26, he met with the school's officials and the county's emergency operations center to assure that law enforcement can monitor school camera systems. On July 28, administrators met with the school attorney to get briefed on Title IX, the sexual harassment and discrimination measures as well as enhanced supervision and other safety procedures. According to Harwood, the county school resource officers have been trained with instructors from the Asheville Buncombe Technical Community College. Quote, we have been able to put AR-15 rifle and safe in all of our schools in the county, Harwood said. We also got breaching tools to go into those safes. We've got extra magazines and ammo in those safes. There are six schools in the Madison County school system, 
Brush Creek Elementary, Hot Springs Elementary, Mars Hill Elementary, Madison Middle, Madison High, and Madison Early College High. Quote, the reason we put the breaching tools in the safes is that in the event we have someone barricaded in a door, we don't have to wait on the fire department. We'll have those tools to be able to breach that door if needed. I do not want to have to run to back out to the car to grab an AR because that's time lost. Hopefully we'll never need it, but I want my guys to be as prepared as prepared can be. Harwood says he feels that while the optics of the SROs, that's the school resource officers, in this case, uh, deputy sheriffs, potentially handling ARs in the school may be discomforting to some. It is a necessary response given the state of the country. I'm a firearms instructor. We carry nine millimeter, 135 grain bullets, Harwood said. We've got the maximum 50 rounds that my SROs are carrying throughout the school to protect the school. I hate that we've come to a place in our nation where I've got to put a safe in our schools and lock that safe up for my deputies to be able to acquire an AR-15. But We can shut it off and say it won't happen in Madison County, but we never know. I want the parents of Madison County to know we're going to take every measure necessary to ensure our kids are safe in this school system. My parents as a whole want me to stand at the door with that AR strapped around and that officer's neck, then that's what we're going to do. But whatever my parents want as a whole to keep our kids safe. Now, the police response, that's the end of the piece. The police response to mass shootings and shootings in particular have been debated with the failure of the SRO to engage in the uh, Parkland school shooting. Remember, he was hiding out in the stairwell. And the debate over the law enforcement response to Uvalde and the Robb Elementary, we read the report in its entirety here on Hertel. You can go back and listen to that episode. Or you can, of course, read it. We link to it at Ordinary-Times.com. I also link this at Ordinary-Times.com. It's important to note here, though, that the only person that's going to have access to that AR-15 and ammunition is the SROs. This isn't like other school systems where they're talking about arming the teachers. This is a little bit different beast. So what do you think? Is this too much? Not enough? Crazy idea? Good idea. Let us know. Show at gmail.com. Show at the Twitter. This uh, debate over preventing school shootings is going to continue. This is what Madison County has decided to try to do, partnering with the school and the sheriff's department that runs their SRO program. What are other schools going to do? Have to wait and see. They want better, though. Everybody's demanding better. This is what they came up with. Let us know what you think. More Hertel right after this. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. You know, we always try to end on a good note, something uplifting, usually a charity thing. We've got a little bit of charity here. I love this one. Kids raise money through charity that puts a new spin on shopping. Picture of a couple little girls laughing and dancing here. Let's go to Tampa Bay. Uh, this is Fox 13 News there. A new charity in Tampa aims to teach kids to give back. Tampa's based brand, Wee McCree. 
make shirts that make a difference, teaching kids to help kids. It sells t-shirts that support organizations that help children. When you pay more, when you pay for one of their shirts, you're paying it forward. The whole idea behind We McCree is getting people to shop differently. Sure, it might cost a little more. It's getting consumers to say, it's okay, you just buy this shirt, you're going to feed 40 meals to children, or the shirt will pair with a therapy dog for a disabled child, explained creator Julie Tingley. We McCree was inspired by the pandemic when the Tampa mom and entrepreneur saw her normally outgoing daughters beginning to withdraw. They had a change, and I started reading the data of increased instances of depression and anxiety and worsening among children. She wanted to empower children to create positive change. The kids that are okay and accounted for, I could make them feel like they had a purpose. That's when we living through this in a time for a purpose, and then the kids were all falling off, not going to school. Could we tell them that there were other kids out there working for them, lifting them up and bringing them up, she said. Ask the girls how powerful kids are, and they say very powerful while throwing their arms up and flexing their muscles and beaming out a smile. Uh, love that story. So good charity there. Cool way to do things. Uh, we'll link to that in the piece if you're interested in Wee McCree. The picture alone is pretty good, and the video of the girls dancing and being excited is pretty cool, too. That'll do it for her to tell on this Monday. Glad to have you back with us. Busy week coming up. A lot of great guests. Enjoyed getting back overseas with a new contributor today. Some old faces, some new faces. We love having knowledgeable guests on. It's how we help turn down the noise of the news cycle, get a nice wide perspective of what's going on, and try to discern the times we live in. Still no caterwauling, still doing the work we promise to do because we never want to waste the most precious thing you have, your time that you're so gracious to give us here on Herdtel. So however you're watching or listening, please reach out to us, herdtelshow at gmail.com, Show on the Twitter. Love to hear from you. We do whole segments and shows just based off of what you want to hear about. So let us know. This is a partnership. Love to hear from you. So until we see you again, wherever you and yours are, we hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you again soon next time for more Hurt Tell. All the music on Hurt Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. So long.